so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Wonderful. We're so happy to have you and we thought that we would kick off today's event. Um, if you could explain to us a little bit about your history with Jungian thought, um, how were you exposed to Jung's ideas? Uh, why did Jungian thought appeal to you? Um, if I were to go into details about that, it would be a very long story, but it started in 1968. So 1968 was a pivotal year for many people, a kind of revolution. And I guess in my personal life, it was a revolution. I got married that year. I discovered Jung that year. I changed course of careers in that year. Um, and it came about through, um, a chance encounter with the person who was familiar with Jung's work. I wasn't, I was in graduate school, had heard of Jung, but at this particular uh, uh, afternoon uh, garden party, um, uh, we were in a discussion about war. Of course, it was the years of the Vietnam War and what causes war? Why is there so much war in human history? And there were various theories about it. And at one point, this woman, her name was Elizabeth O'Connor. I remember her well, said, uh, well, you should really read Jung sometime on projection and the projection of the shadow. I thought that's an interesting idea. So I went out and bought a book and uh, it was Jung's autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And I've been reading Jung regularly ever since, and I'm still not uh, bored by his writings or, or uh, tired of them. Um, I continue to teach from them and uh, continue to learn from them. So it's been quite a long journey with Jung. I'd say he's the single most important intellectual figure in my life. There are many others, but uh, he stands out from the rest. Yeah, so it, it's fascinating to know that you were introduced to him so young. Um, and in that way, I think maybe you, you've kind of grown up with his work and seen how it's impacted the world. And I think that's a big theme for today's discussion is what was Jung's impact on the world? How did he change the way that we, we think, even from the 60s or when he was doing his work in the early 1900s to this moment in our time? Well, if you would have asked Jung that question, which uh, was asked to him by Michael Fordham in about 1958, a few years before he died, uh, Fordham said he was very depressed that his work had not changed the world significantly. And in fact, that his work had not been understood by very many people at all. Um, so um, I think it would be an overstatement to say that Jung's thinking has changed the world to any significant degree, but I do believe that he was part of a large movement that has changed the world significantly, and that is what we call modernity or post-modernity now. Uh, he contributed to uh, a stream of thought that um, 
he was uh, um, introduced to uh, through his psychiatric studies in the early 1900s, through his work with Freud, and then through his own creative process, contributing his own views on um, uh, the human psyche and how that psyche is put together and how we um, interact with each other in the world and how we find meaning um, and so on and so forth. So I think for the people who have spent time with Jung and his writings, um, it makes a great difference in their individual lives. Um, I've worked with a lot of people by now in analysis um, and almost without exception at the end of the pro uh, process, if there's no, there is no end to the process, but when we terminate our work uh, and I, I'm in contact with them later, uh, almost inevitably they will say, um, Jung's um, uh, ideas and, and uh, approaches have changed my life. Certainly was the case in my own story. Um, when you take Jung's views seriously and you work with his approach to uh, psychology and psychotherapy, um, it changes a lot in the way you, you look at things and your perspectives and your uh, approach to, to life in general, to other people, to yourself. Um, it is truly revolutionary if you take it seriously and um, work with it. But on a collective level, on the big level, it hasn't made enough of a difference. Maybe in the future, it will make a bigger difference. James Hillman wrote a book. Uh, he was a, a very important follower of Jung's 100 Years of Psychotherapy and the World Hasn't Changed. <laughs> um, I think there is more consciousness in the world now than there was 100 years ago of a certain kind. Um, but um, not enough to satisfy those of us who wish um, there were more. Um, and uh, we just have to keep working at it. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, on that individual level, I, I think that is really where Jung's work does shine. And I'm curious, since you've worked with this material and you've been an analyst for so long, are there certain areas of his theory, certain techniques? Um, is it just really that it's circumambulating this greater truth of the unconscious that you find the most powerful in the work uh, with your clients? Um, or is there any other specific areas that you feel really tend to open people up to this uh, greater insight and path towards transformation? Well, there are so many points. Uh, <clears throat> Jung was a very complex figure as a human being. It's very hard to get your arms around him and say, this is Jung, this is the real Jung. You have many different Jungs. And, and so his theory is also very complex and there are different entry points and different emphases. Um, I have a good friend lives in San Francisco, John Beebe, and he has specialized in uh, Jung's um, theory of psychological type. Uh, he's written several uh, books about it, and he uses it extensively in his own work as an analyst and in his teaching. So that would be his entry point. Uh, if you can get a hold of what Jung means by psychological type, you begin to under, understand yourself in a, in a new way, and you begin to understand other people and why you have arguments with them and why you can never agree with them and why you see the world so differently. 
um, Jung wrote psychological types because he tried to understand the difference between between Alfred Adler and Sigmund Freud. They had two very different theories, looking at the same subject material, looking at the same objects, come up with two completely different explanations. How do you account for that? They're both very bright men, geniuses, and yet they come up with such different answers to the questions. So Jung came up with this idea of typology. Adler is introverted, uh, Freud is extroverted. Um, and so, uh, that's a very important uh, feature of Jungian work to, to get a hold of psychological type, to understand yourself, how you function and interpret the world and see the world through these particular lenses and how other people are different. So um, um, another very powerful um, opening um, to the inner world is working with dreams, of course. And um, uh, Jung emphasizes the importance of dreams in um, uh, discovering uh, what's going on in that dark part of the mind, the unconscious that we um, uh, often don't recognize as uh, um, uh, at work in our, in our um, attitudes and in our reactions and emotional life and thinking, how to get uh, a handle on the unconscious. So if you look at dreams carefully over a period of time in analysis with somebody who can work with you on those dreams, um, that's a tremendous uh, entry point into understanding the unconscious world or the inner world as we call it. And then working with it uh, actively in active imagination. That was a, a method or a technique that Jung developed for engaging with the um, contents of the unconscious, interacting with them, working with them, uh, and integrating them into a greater sense of wholeness, as he called it, or greater sense of consciousness um, of um, what's going on in your psyche. Um, so I would say uh, in my work with, uh, with my clients, working with dreams, and uh, working with active imagination probably are what I have emphasized mostly. Um, and um, and the, um, the goal of this work is to um, produce greater consciousness or to engage and, and um, deepen and intensify what Jung called the individuation process. That is the process of a person becoming themselves, becoming themselves more fully, and it's, it, it doesn't mean individualism or it isn't individualistic. It's uh, a deeper sense of the whole self that we are and not just the partial self that we might have a grasp on uh, one-sidedly in our conscious life. So um, the goal is the individuation process and the methods are, um, as I said, working with dreams, active imagination, typology, um, those would be three of the top um, resources. You're bringing up um, something that I think maybe not everybody understands about the Jungian world, but as it's developed um, in the kind of post-Jungian movement, that there's been further developments in uh, the Jungian field where we have kind of different schools of thought. And some of what you're talking about seems to me to speak to a lot of the classical approach to the, the Jungian work. 
um, focusing on dreams, focusing on active imagination. But there are other schools that have kind of uh, come to uh, fruition through other key analysts like James Hillman with archetypal psychology or Michael Fordham. And I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to these other evolutions of Jungian psychology, different schools uh, and what really the post-Jungian uh, space looks like at this time. Well, as you, as you pointed out, I, I'm a classical Jungian and uh, Andrew Samuels wrote the, uh, the book on this topic of uh, Jung and the Post-Jungians, in which he, he identified three schools, the classical school, the archetypal school, and the, what he called the developmental school. Development, the developmental school was um, um, uh, founded and, and fostered and uh, spoken for, written about most powerfully by Michael Fordham. And Michael Fordham's version of Jungian psychology is a blend between um, uh, modern psychoanalysis, Winnicott, uh, Klein, Bion, uh, and Jung. He was a Jungian, but he uh, engaged very much in the practices and, the, and the, used the methods of um, classical psychoanalysis four times a week on the couch, maybe five times if necessary, uh, and uh, a, a strong emphasis on childhood and early development. Uh, and transference and regression uh, in the classical school that is included, but it's not emphasized the way Michael Fordham did. James Hillman, on the other hand, lopped off most of uh, Jungian psychology and emphasized one feature mainly, and that was imagination or the image, the imaginal, uh, working with imagination. Um, and um, he was a true son of Jung in the sense that he believed that uh, uh, imagination is very important in psychological life, um, and um, um, that that's a, a, a takeoff or a spin-off, really, from Jung's active imagination. Um, uh, Postmodern, um, I don't, uh, I don't uh, think much of it actually. I, I think of part modern. Uh, part Jungian, not post-Jungian, part Jungian. They're partly Jungian, but then they include a massive uh, uh, amounts of um, uh, theory and practice from other schools. So it's part Jungian, but part uh, psycho psychoanalytic or intersubjectivity, inter uh, uh, intersubjective or um, um, uh, even uh, cognitive, uh, behavioral, you know, there are these combinations, uh, and I call them part Jungian rather than post Jungian. I don't see these schools as an evolution of analytical psychology. I see them as branches that go out from a stem and connect at certain points, but they don't really evolve it further. There has been some further development of some Jungian ideas or areas which maybe were lacking or Jung didn't have time for or didn't, wasn't uh, in a position uh, to explore such as neuropsychiatry uh, because it wasn't available. Uh, so quite a, quite a bit of work now has been done on linking uh, neuropsychiatry, neurology and neuroscience 
with uh, some Jungian ideas. Some books have been written about this. I would say that is a true evolution or extension into uh, taking Jung's ideas a bit further than he could in his time. Also, the work of people like Donald Kalshed and uh, Ursula Wirtz here in Zurich, um, working with trauma. And um, Jung, of course, knew all about trauma. He, his first uh, um, attempt at theorizing was uh, to create a theory of complexes. And complexes are formed by trauma. But he didn't go into the, um, uh, into the working of trauma and its, uh, and its effects on later life, the way these later um, analysts have done. And Kalshad's work is very important for that. And it's being used all over the world by people as books translated into many languages. Um, and so those are true extensions. Um, they're not departures, but they take uh, an aspect, uh, an undeveloped feature of Jungian psychology and carry it further. So um, that's what I see as evolutionary. I don't think they would call themselves post-Jungian, but I'm not sure what they call themselves, but they, they are Jungians with um, um, uh, new insights, new information, uh, new data, uh, and uh, are working with that very effectively with their patients. Do you see Jung as strictly a man of science, or do you think it'd be more accurate to call him a philosopher or artist or even a religious figure? Um, it was all of that. <laughs> as I say, Jung was a very complex figure. Um, if you want to find models that resemble Jung in history, look at Paracelsus and Goethe, for instance. Um, at the core of Jung's um, passion, I think, was were two things. One was a passion to understand, that is an intellectual passion to understand how things work, how the psyche works, what's in the unconscious, how does it relate to consciousness. And the other passion was for healing people. He was a doctor, he was a physician. Um, in that sense, he's like Paracelsus. Goethe wasn't a physician, he didn't engage in that type of work, but um, Jung, uh, uh, gave himself to the project of, um, of mental health, of healing people, of trying to help them get a better balance, a better grip on their psychological dynamics. Um, and um, uh, you can look, him, look at him as a shaman, a kind of shamanic healer. He had a kind of magical uh, um, healing power that people report uh, visiting him and having a few sessions and uh, the experience they had. Um, Jung also believed um, that um, a numinous experience, sometimes called mystical experience, but numinous experience has an important effect on people's lives, it gives them a sense of meaning. And he worked a lot with the uh, idea that numinous uh, experiences um, have a therapeutic value. 
So he combined, let's say, religion and medicine in that sense, religion and psychiatry. Uh, he didn't interpret religion and mystical experience away as something substitute or something uh, uh, fictional that people um, use as crutches to support themselves and, and make the best of their lives. He saw these kind of experiences as essential expressions of their deep psyche and their, uh, and their um, uh, search for meaning. And there you can compare him to Dante, you know, Dante's journey through, uh, through uh, the Inferno and Purgatorio and Paradiso. It's a journey from the darkness to the light through experiencing important figures along the way and being guided by Virgil and Beatrice and so on. Um, that's a kind of individuation journey. Um, and um, so Jung combines, that's, that's one of the things that interested me in him so much at the beginning when I read Memories, Dreams, Reflections, I was a student of religion and religious studies and theology. Um, and I knew there was something lacking there. It, it, it was too abstract. It didn't touch the ground enough. Interesting ideas. But when I came to Jung, I saw how it grew out of the ground. All these ideas come from somewhere. They come out of the psyche. And if we re relate to them in, in a particular way, uh, they can be very valuable for us. Uh, they can help us. They can give us energy, creativity, uh, interest in life, and, uh, and, a, and a widened perspective on life. So um, it was these combinations of things that uh, drew me to Jung. And I think it's also the same thing that makes him so difficult to completely grasp and say, this is what he was and not that. He was interested in many things. So this way that Jung is combining realms or building bridges between realms is what I imagine is part of his controversy, part of the sort of Jung as mystic instead of as being a scientist. So what, what, what were the controversies surrounding Jung's ideas and why was he viewed as somewhat problematic in the world of psychology well, by some people? Well, the first controversy was when he, when, uh, he and Freud uh, parted company. And, uh, and Freud felt that Jung was a mystic. Uh, he said that Jung, Jung has a kind of mystical way of thinking. Jung's way of thinking was intuitive. He was an intuitive thinker. Uh, Freud was a, a more um, empirical thinker or a rational thinker, let's say, but Jung's mind leapt uh, to um, heights and depths that uh, Freud couldn't follow. And so Freud said, well, he's a mystic. He comes from a pastor's family. You know, he's a little too religious for my taste and they parted company. That was the first controversy. So Jung got labeled as a mystic. Um, and that was a very bad word, and, and Jung didn't want to be known as a mystic, he wanted to be known as a scientist. Well, what kind of scientist was he? That's, that raised issues and problems. Uh, he said um, that he was a phenomenologist, that is, he, he would investigate phenomena. He, he was limiting himself to what he could um, inspect as a scientist, what he could see. 
he wasn't a metaphysician. He wasn't a theologian. He was uh, a psychologist who would take uh, the material produced by anybody, uh, any kind of experience known to man, and uh, look at it from a psychological point of view. And that includes religious experience. In that sense, he was like William James. He liked William James very much, the varieties of religious experience. Uh, because William James also doesn't reduce religious experience to uh, neurology or um, uh, childhood dynamics or something like that, but uh, takes it on its face value and thinks about it and thinks about it in, the, in a context of, uh, of other, uh, other experiences of the religious or the numinous. So this, uh, because Jung was an intuitive thinker um, and uh, cast his net so widely, uh, uh, toward the end of his life, he was inter interested in, in flying saucers. Uh, you know, uh, the, the symbolism of flying saucers. What does the appearance of flying saucers mean on the collective level of humanity today? Why are there so many appearances of flying saucers? This was in the early 1950s. And he, he collected uh, uh, stories from people he knew about sightings of flying saucers. So uh, lots of things interested him that were off the map of academic psychologists or academic philosophers or academic um, uh, psychiatrists. Uh, and so he was controversial in every field. <laughs> the theologians objected to what he said about God. And Jung kept saying, I'm not talking about God. I'm talking about experiences of God. I'm talking about God images. I'm not talking about your theological metaphysical God. Don't get upset. So they criticized him for that. Um, the uh, 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 psychologists criticized him for not uh, doing enough testing and research in the laboratory and empirical studies. And he said, oh, your psychology is, is without psyche. It's without soul. Uh, you're, you're reducing everything to numbers. Uh, I'm interested in the soul. So he was attacked from many sides. Um, and uh, I think the people that really gravitate to Jung and really like him are those who share his um, openness to all kinds of experience and probably intuitive thinkers more than, let's say, uh, uh, the more rational and uh, hard-edged analytic thinkers. Um, I'm sure Bertrand Russell didn't spend much time reading Jung. Um, but um, uh, uh, the uh, um, scope of his thinking exceeds any of the academic disciplines. It, it, you can't put him in a department. I went to the University of Chicago, got my PhD there. They might be able to have Jung there because they have interdisciplinary uh, departments that you know, sociologists and psychologists and philosophers and, and uh, medical people come together and form a, a study group and, and they all contribute to it. And that kind of place, uh, Jung would have uh, possibly found a home. Uh, but in most universities, it's very divided. And the, and the borders and boundaries between the departments and disciplines are very sharp. And so in psychology, you do research 
you have to have statistics, you have to get numbers. Jung did a little bit of that, but he wasn't very good at math and he wasn't very interested in that uh, type of research. So uh, Jung doesn't appeal to people who are in that. I, I um, wanted to give a mathemat mathematician friend of mine a Christmas present one time. This was many years ago before I understood uh, the field very well. And uh, so I gave him, uh, he was a high school math teacher. I liked him very much, we got along well. And I gave him a copy of Jung's Memories, Dreams, Reflections as a Christmas present. And after the uh, Christmas holidays, we got back together and I asked him, well, how'd you like it? Thinking I'd get a really strong response. He was an intellectual interested in many things. He said, you know, I read three pages of that book. I took it out in the backyard and I threw it in the river. I couldn't bear it. Well, he was a very analytic, mathematical type of thinker. And when they come up against Jung and they, they see that he exceeds all their categories and all their boundaries and the rational way of thinking and makes leaps and it's more like a poet, uh, they can't follow it and it frustrates them. Uh, so they, they dismiss it. Um, so Jung isn't everybody's cup of tea, uh, but I, I've tried to make Jung accessible to more people by writing some books like Jung's Map of the Soul, where I try to lay out his theory for a, a general reader who might be interested in psychology. And uh, um, I don't write the way Jung did. I, I write in a more um, um, linear fashion, I guess, or explanatory um, way that is, makes these ideas accessible to people. Yeah, I think um, some of the feedback I tend to hear from people who want to read Jung is how difficult it is to penetrate deep into the collected work. So uh, the work that you do, James Hollis, Marie-Louise von Franz, all Edinger, that I think really sets people up to then dive a little bit more deeply. Those are great companions. Um, but you touched on some stuff that I wanted to expand on, which is how Jung really fits into more of the academic scientific circles. Um, and I think for a lot of people nowadays who might be pursuing uh, a, a career in psychology, they might touch on Jung and maybe like an introduction to psychology. And that's probably gonna be more lumped in with just the, the development of the psychoanalytic um, space and, and Freud's work. And you don't really see a lot of Jung in uh, the universities, unless I think you have a professor who really values his work. And uh, there's been a, also, I think, a movement towards more of the cognitive behavioral, DBT, you know, um, interventions that focus more on uh, the ego rather than the unconscious. And the, the work of Jung and other depth psychologists, I think, stands in contrast to that. Um, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit, um, especially as a clinician yourself, how you see that at play and, you know, what does Jungian analysis provide that other forms of therapy do not? Well, to, to really study Jung's, Jungian psychoanalysis, as I call it, and I've edited a couple of books with that title, um, use, collecting the, the papers of many Jungian analysts uh, to really uh, study uh, Jung's approach to psychotherapy and psychoanalysis in depth, you have to go 
to a, uh, a private institute. It's not taught in any of the universities that I know of. I don't think there's a single one. There is a, a school in California called the Pacific uh, Graduate Institute where you can get a good taste of Jungian theory and practice. Uh, they orient themselves around Jung and Jungian writers. Um, and they offer a, um, a, a doctor's degree in clinical psychology that's licensed in the state of California. And there you would get a good taste of it, but still it's not training. If you want training uh, to really understand how Jungian psychology works, uh, in practice, you have to go to a training institute, and those are run by uh, Jungian analyst societies. And there are about 50 of them, 50 of them throughout the world. Um, so the one I teach at in Zurich is called the International School of Analytical Psychology. It's a training program. And uh, there are three aspects to the training. One is personal analysis. Every trained Jungian analyst has had an extensive personal analysis. That's the core of the training. You have to experience it yourself, in yourself, for yourself. And there's an academic part, coursework, writing papers, theoretical papers, a thesis, and so on. And then there's supervision of cases that the student is working with under the supervision of a senior analyst. And those three components then after about four or five years of uh, pretty intensive work uh, result in a diploma so that you can uh, join the society as a full-fledged Jungian analyst. That's the way to get the Jungian um, practice under your belt. To get the theory, there are some, uh, some universities will offer a course occasionally. I took a course at the University of Chicago from Peter Holmans in uh, some of Jung's ideas, Jung and religion, that was focused on. He was very good on Jung. And uh, when I went to Yale as an undergraduate, my favorite teacher was Harold Bloom. And Bloom uh, was a Jungian in disguise. He would cite Freud. He wouldn't cite Jung very much. But um, after studying with him and then getting to know Jung, I could see Bloom really is a Jungian. Um, he's a Gnostic and a um, a follower of the Romantics and uh, imagination is all and Shakespeare is everything. Um, uh, so, um, and then at uh, Yale Divinity School, I discovered in the pastoral counseling section uh, of the school, a man who had been to Zurich and had studied there. And in his courses, he used Jung quite a bit. And I actually went into uh, therapy with him and we worked on my dreams. That was my first experience of working with dreams. He wasn't a qualified Jungian analyst, but he'd spent a year, sabbatical year in Zurich studying and in analysis himself. And so I was lucky, uh, but in most universities, you'd be hard pressed to find um, a, an endowed professor um, who um, uh, knows very much about Jung or is um, interested in uh, teaching students at an advanced level about Jung. There was one at the Texas A&M University, uh, David Rosen, but he's retired now. And they didn't replace his chair, unfortunately. He did teach uh, uh, graduate level uh, courses in analytical psychology and advised dissertations 
that used Jungian ideas. Um, and, um, and then there's uh, Essex University in, uh, in England that uh, has a department uh, dedicated to Jungian studies. So on an academic level, they're very good. And you can get a master's degree and a PhD um, uh, on an academic level uh, from Essex University. It's a, a very um, uh, highly respected uh, English university. Those are the ones I know of in the English speaking world. If you go out from there uh, to Japan, uh, um, it's, it's easier. There are professors in psychology departments who teach Jungian psychology in Japan. And that has a history to it. Same thing is true in Brazil um, and um, China and some other countries. So depending on the country, um, Italy has uh, academic Jungians uh, in the faculties. But in the English speaking world, it's pretty hard to find um, a full-fledged uh, professor in any department. Um, my friend uh, Henry Abramovich went to Yale also and uh, through the graduate program in psychology there. And he did have, I think Daniel Levinson was there at the time. And Daniel Levinson was interested in Jung. He had some Jungian analysis and he wrote a book, uh, The Seasons of a Man's Life. It was published in the 1970s, I think and um, a very important book on midlife, uh, on the seasons of a man's life. And um, so he represented Jung on the Yale faculty in the psychology department at that time, but um, they're not easy to find. So from our perspective, Jungian thought is becoming increasingly popular. It seems like people are exploring Jung more than they were um, five or 10 years ago. Do you perceive this as well? Do you think that Jan is becoming more popular? Is there a kind of resurgence in interest maybe among young people? Um, I, I, I read about it and it seems so. Uh, it seems there's quite a lot, there, a lot of books are written about Jung now. I mean, that's a, it's almost a flood, almost too many. Uh, every week I get a notice of another book um, uh, written by Jungians and, and they, they do, uh, all of us try to uh, pitch our, um, our narratives and our studies uh, to a, um, an audience that isn't limited to strictly to Jungian analysts and candidates in training. We try to branch out. So I think that's had an effect not only in English language, but in, in other languages as well. There's a lot of writing that's been done. And uh, uh, new institutes have been getting set up at a pretty good pace. Uh, for a while, I was on the um, uh, executive committee of the uh, IAP, the International Association of Analytical Psychology, and I served as president for three years in the early 2000s. And um, what we witnessed uh, during the 80s and 90s was a huge surge of interest uh, in Jung, in the United States especially, to some extent in Europe too, but I was in the United States at that time. Uh, so uh, we'd get large audiences, 500,000 people coming to weekend work 
weekend lecture series and things like that. Um, the training programs were filled, uh, new training programs were being opened. So there was a, a surge of interest. Uh, also, the Jung Institute in Zurich saw a big surge of interest in the 80s. I think the numbers of students rose into the into the hundreds, 200, 300 students, which was when I studied at the Jung Institute, I think there were maybe 20 students. Uh, it was very small and they relocated to a bigger building and, and then it tapered off and, um, and uh, in some areas of the world has declined a bit or is kind of holding its own, but where the huge growth of interest has been in learning about Jung at, at an advanced level, let's say um, for training purposes or professional purposes has been in Russia and China and Latin America. Uh, Russia and China were closed to Jung's ideas until about 1990. And when the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet empire uh, evaporated, um, turned into what it is, what Russia is now, and with all these independent states around it, the doors were suddenly open. And it turned out that people had been quietly and covertly uh, reading Jung's work, which was illegal. You could go, you know, be severely punished for if you got caught at it, but it was uh, mimeographed texts were passed under the table among students. And now suddenly they could study openly. So when I was in the IAP, we set up training programs in St. Petersburg and Moscow, and they grew rapidly and they're, now they're functioning, they're full-fledged training programs on their own. There are, I think, 50 or 60 analysts in, in, the, in the Russian society. And then um, in 1994, Tom Kirsch and I went to China. We were the first representatives of, um, of the IEP to enter China. And we were hosted by a man named uh, Heyong Shen, Professor Heyong Shen. He's now a Jungian analyst and the leader of the Jungian movement in China. Uh, he's a professor in Guangzhou. And uh, we traveled to Beijing with him and, um, and we opened China, as we say, and we designated him as our representative there. And since then, uh, there's been an explosion of interest in, in China. Uh, for two years, I lectured every week uh, just recently, I just finished um, a few weeks ago to a group of about two or 300 Chinese students every week on an introduction to Jungian theory and practice. Every week I'd speak for 90 minutes, it would be interpreted and translated and questions asked and I'd respond to them and so on. And um, they have money for it, they have interest in it, and they have a professional a cadre there of uh, doctors and psychologists now who are practicing psychotherapy. There was none of that. When we first went in 1994, we visited the psychiatric hospitals and they were using acupuncture. But no individual psychotherapy, uh, no group psychotherapy. They had a little bit of music therapy, uh, but it, really individual psychotherapy was unknown to them. Now there are hundreds, thousands of psychotherapists active in Russia. The Freudians have been very active in Russia, training uh, in, in China and Russia, uh, training as well. And so um, that's uh, uh, um, 
big growth areas are out there. The training programs in the established, old established training institutes in North America and Europe are holding their own. I mean, there's still new students coming in at about the same levels as they were before. Um, the public programs are not quite as large as they used to be, I think. Um, but now they're picking up again with uh, Zoom. Uh, people can stay at home and watch the programs like this. Um, and uh, so the numbers are pretty good. The interest seems to be there. And as far as I know, the Jungian practices are doing well. From what I hear, word of mouth, uh, people are able to keep a full practice going. So that's a good sign. All right, I think it's time to move over to audience Q&A. Uh, just so you all know, we won't necessarily go through all questions asked and we won't necessarily go through them in order. If you'd like to turn on your video at this point, feel free to do that. Um, first question we will have is from Tyler. If you'd like to unmute yourself and ask your question, go ahead. Tyler, are you there? Going once, going twice. Okay, we'll try Herodos first. Herodos, you had two questions. Why don't you choose one of those to ask? Hi, Dr. Stein. Uh, thanks for this opportunity. Um, I was wondering, how do you work with numinous experiences in your clinical practice? Well, I receive them um, and uh, we reflect on them. Uh, it depends a bit on how they arrive. Uh, uh, sometimes a, a new client will come in and report that they've had a, a very powerful numinous experience at some time in their past, really uh, almost to the level of a fearful experience, an almost quasi-psychotic experience where they lost their orientation for a period of time, uh, but then recovered and, um, and I asked them to tell me about it. And uh, we, uh, Jung spoke of numinous experiences as signposts of the individuation process. And they usually turn out to have been turning points. It's certainly in this woman's life who came to me with a very powerful experience from maybe 20 years earlier uh, had changed her life completely. She had gone in a, another direction, gotten involved in religious studies, uh, gotten a degree as a, a clinical social worker and so on and so forth. And now she wanted to um, study Jungian psychology. So she came to me and we um, uh, spoke about her numinous experience. That was from the past. Sometimes though they arrive while the person is in analysis, uh, either outside or within the office, um, uh, through a dream, for instance. Uh, some dreams, um, we call them big dreams in Jungian work, are very powerful, numinous uh, experiences that are brought then into the session and are related to other things that are going on in the person's life. What I try to do with numinous experience is connected, related to life on the ground. The um, numinous experience can be stimulated, as I'm sure you well know, by drugs. And this was tried in uh, the 
60s, 70s with LSD. It's coming back somewhat now under more controlled conditions, but you can um, stimulate uh, numinous experiences, religious, mystical experiences through the use of drugs. The problem is how to connect them to everyday life through to a person's life on the ground. And um, if they occur within the context of analysis, it's much easier to do because you have a lot of information about the person, you have background, you have uh, other psychological material that you can connect it to, um, and you treat those uh, images uh, that appear in a numinous experience as symbols. Uh, you don't literalize them, you don't concretize them, you live with them. Um, this is what Jung called the symbolic life. You live with symbols and they, um, they remain with you and you um, uh, recall them from time to time. You might paint a picture of them. You might um, um, uh, take it further in active imagination um, and you process it uh, slowly over time in the analytic process. The analytic process is, has a life of its own. It's based on a relationship, uh, the therapeutic relationship, which is a very complex relationship in itself that we uh, focus on in our uh, studies and in our teaching uh, with conscious and unconscious levels. And so the numinous experience in the analysis is woven into the um, uh, process of uh, of the ongoing analytic experience. Um, Jung wrote a very interesting commentary on a series of dreams and what, uh, what um, Wolfgang Pauli, the dreamer, called uh, visions. Some of those visions were very powerful, symbolic, numinous experiences for him. He was a physicist in Zurich in the 19, you know, he met Jung in the 1930s and he, and he produced um, uh, a series of dreams and visions that Jung wrote a commentary about. And that is published in a book called Psychology and Alchemy. And so Jung is interpreting the symbols of the, uh, uh, of the visions and relating them to the dreams. So he creates a series. So the linkage is very important that numinous experiences don't just sit out there by themselves, but they're linked to individuation process and to other material like other dreams or insights or realizations um, and other types of experience uh, on a conscious level. All right, thank you Herodos for that question. Uh, Ava, do you wanna unmute yourself and ask your question? Okay, I'll just read it for her. She asked, um, what do you think about Jungian theories of cognitive functions used in MBTI? Is it valid? Say that again. Um, the use of Jungian theory in the Myers-Briggs type indicator. So taking Jungian typology, integrating it into MBTI, is it valid? Is it being used properly? What are your thoughts? I should think so, why not? Uh, MBTI is a kind of cognitive, um, uh, test. It's uh, 
widely used for in business and uh, organizations. And it's based on Jung's typology. <clears throat> um, it's not exactly, um, um, I, I don't think Jung would have created a test like that. He wasn't a test creator, but it has, uh, uh, I think it's been validated fairly well statistically. And um, um, uh, a, a student of mine in uh, Chicago named Mary Loomis um, created an alternative test that she called, uh, she called the, the functions cognitive functions. So you can use these four functions, thinking, feeling, uh, sensation, and intuition <clears throat> as cognitive functions to orient um, the ego to the world around it. Um, and it's very useful to think in that way and to develop all four functions, introverted and extroverted sides of them. And it is a kind of cognitive behavioral um, uh, method for uh, working with uh, consciousness. You know, some people get too, uh, they develop uh, one of their functions uh, in, in such an extreme way that it uh, freezes out the other functions and they become what we call one-sided. That's the basis for neurosis. And you can see this in biographies of people. Uh, I recently read the biography of a mathematician named Kurt Gödel. Um, he had underlying problems. I think he was borderline schizophrenic, but he was a very, very brilliant mathematical genius recognized by Einstein and all his peers as um, unsurpassed and uh, he um, um, developed some very important ideas in mathematics. Um, uh, but uh, he had terrible problems uh, relating to other people. He couldn't read them. He, uh, he became paranoid. He couldn't trust them. Um, and um, he um, he could use his thinking function to an extraordinary degree, but then his other functions became uh, kind of pathological, like his intuition went toward, they're trying to poison me. You know, he thought people were trying to poison him, so his wife had to test the food before he would eat it. Um, and um, he, um, his sensate function wasn't very well developed. Uh, he didn't have good taste uh, in, uh, decorating his house and so on. His aesthetic um, uh, function wasn't uh, um, very well uh, organized or developed and his feeling function was probably zero. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it would be interesting to have given him a, a, psych, a, a Myers-Briggs test, but he would have come out way on top of the thinking function, introverted thinking sky high. Um, now, if you get somebody like that, and I did have a mathematician in my practice at one time, it's very hard to work with them, but you try to develop their other functions because it creates balance. Um, and they do much better in life and with other people if they aren't just using their logical mind to try to figure out everything, because life isn't logical. You have to use your intuition, you have to use your sensation uh, to figure things out. If you go just by logic, you can make terrible mistakes. The mathematician I worked with one night went to a department store 
at uh, five minutes before 12 and they were just closing up and he protested. He said, you said you'd be open till 12 o'clock. It's not 12 o'clock, it's three minutes till 12. Keep that door open. And he got into a fist fight with him. Now, that's, he doesn't have common sense. He isn't using his intuition or his feeling. These people want to go home. They don't want to open the door to you at five to 12. But his logic said, they said 12 o'clock and he's a mathematician. It's not 12 yet, three minutes to 12. So there you are, your, your rational mind is right, but your, 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 uh, your emotional mind is not functioning. Thank you, Dr. Stein. Um, we are reaching the top of the hour. So I just wanna thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I know you've always got a lot going on. I saw recently that you're gonna be giving a talk on Dante's Divine Comedy at um, the Young Society of Washington, which people can sign up for. Um, if people wanna check out your work more, should they head over to your website? Any, anything else you'd like to share with us? Yes, I have a website, um, murraystein.com. And I'd just like to mention one thing because your audience, some of the people may be interested in this next year, the end of um, April, uh, there will be a three-day conference uh, in Switzerland in Ascona, which is where Aronos, the Aronos conferences were held. There's an Aronos Foundation, and we're calling it an Aronos Conference on Jung, Jung's Red Book for Our Time. Uh, there will be, uh, I think, 10 speakers, uh, on site, uh, we hope um, COVID will allow that by then. Um, and uh, with plenty of time for uh, discussion, for taking walks around the grounds, for visiting the area uh, in a very, very pleasant part of Switzerland. And at that time of year, the weather is usually very good. So if you want to um, uh, check that out, you can go to Pacific. Uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute website, and, and there you can click on a, um, uh, um, um, a, a notice that will take you into um, about a 40 or 50 minute description of all the speakers will uh, make a short presentation, and you get a general picture of who will be there and what will be going on. But I think that will be, um, um, very um, rich and uh, for people who are interested in Jung's Red Book especially, could be a very uh, wonderful experience. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again, everybody. Let's give Dr. Stein a muted round of applause. Um, it was such a pleasure to have you join us here today. Um, if those who are attending are interested in more upcoming events of the Golden Shadow, head over to our website, www.goldenshadow.org. We will be discussing alchemy later this month and the four um, elemental operations. So head over to the website, check out for upcoming events. And thank you everyone for attending. And of course, thank you, Dr. Stein. <laughs> Take care, everybody. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash goldenshadoworg. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events, or work one-on-one -on -one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.